Hey folks, the gang is off this week due to travel, conflicts, and uh, a bit of sickness, as you might be able to hear in my voice. Early next week, we're going to be back with more post-election analysis and a look at how marijuana legalization is impacting energy use. So stay tuned for that. This week, we have a show that Shale Khan and I recorded in front of a crowd at General Motors World Headquarters on the ins and outs of corporate renewables procurement. There's a lot of good insight here into how big companies are buying clean power and about how developers are approaching these companies. A couple of things before we get into it. Firstly, you can get the transcript of this podcast and soon transcripts of the Energy Gang at GTM Squared. I know a lot of you have been asking for transcripts, and we're going to start offering those to our Squared members, so another benefit there. Secondly, you should come to our Storage Summit on December 7th and 8th in San Francisco. We've got an incredible lineup of the top experts and business leaders in the industry, so this is your chance to learn about storage in these uncertain times and network with the biggest names in the business. Energy Gang listeners who haven't signed up yet get 15% off by using the promo code ENERGYGANG upon checkout. That's ENERGYGANG, all one word, upon checkout. Finally, a big thanks to Mission Solar for sponsoring this show. Uh, Mission Solar operates a 200-megawatt facility right here in the U.S. that is operating 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Through state-of-the-art engineering and outstanding quality, Mission Solar's modules offer world-class performance and guaranteed long-term reliability. America's booming solar industry now employs over 200,000 people, and Mission Solar is one of those proud employers. The company's solar manufacturing facility supports 400 U.S. solar workers in San Antonio, Texas, directly contributing to America's burgeoning clean energy economy. Find out more about Mission's solar cells and modules at missionsolar.com. Now here's our show from the Business Renewables Center conference this week. The gang will be back on Tuesday. This is The Interchange, a weekly conversation about the changing business of energy and clean tech from GTM Squared. I'm Stephen Lacey, joined by Shale Khan, and today we're live in Detroit, Michigan, at the Renaissance Center, the world headquarters of General Motors. Here, the Rocky Mountain Institute and GM have assembled some of the top buyers and sellers of renewables in corporate America. And today, we're going to talk about one of the most promising, if not also one of the most complicated sectors, corporate renewable energy procurement. As we've discussed on this show before, some of the biggest companies in the world are setting ambitious targets for renewables and carbon emission reductions. And no longer are they just buying credits. They're signing contracts for renewable electrons and thus supporting gigawatts of new projects. Here with me to unpack this, as usual, is Shale Khan, our senior VP of research at GTM. Hello, how are you? Hey, Stephen, doing great. And we've got two experts in the field up here on stage with us. The first is Hervé Tuati who is the managing director of the Rocky Mountain Institute, who also co-runs the Business Re Renewable Center. Hello, Hervé. Hello, Steve. How are you? Fine, thank you. And the second is Rob Threlkeld, who is the general manager of renewable energy at General Motors. Hey, Rob. Morning, Steve. How are you? Excellent. Great. So before we hear from these two gentlemen, I want to turn it over to Shale, who uh, maybe can give an outsider perspective of why we at GTM think this is such an interesting space and how you may be approaching it from a data gathering and you know, market intelligence perspective. Sure, so you know, what we're talking about here is corporate procurement of renewable energy, um, largely offsite procurement. It's a relatively new sector from the perspective of renewable energy more broadly in the US that's been around for a few years. 
and it's gaining a lot of steam. I think we think it's very important, um, even in the broader context of renewable energy generally, for a few reasons. So one is that uh, if you step back and look at what's happening with utility scale renewables in the US right now, we're in a really weird spot, which is that we are in this construction boom, the likes of which we've never seen before. There was a huge buildup of new procurement, largely from utilities in 2014, but in particular in 2015, under the expectation that the investment tax credit and the production tax credit would expire. So we built up this big pipeline, which we are now constructing. So we'll see more solar and more wind constructed in the US in aggregate uh, this year than we've ever seen in the past. We may also see almost just as much uh, installed next year for the same reason. We're just working through this big pipeline. But while the construction is way up, procurement is actually down. Um, utilities have signed less new power purchase agreements for solar and wind this year than they have in previous years. And that's for a couple of reasons. Part of it is just this hangover from all the buildup they were doing, all these new contracts they were signing in previous years. Part of it is also that in some of the major markets, California in particular, utilities don't really have a regulatory need to procure a whole lot more in the near term. They've basically met their RPS target for the near and in some cases medium term. So utility procurement is, is in a bit of a, a trough right now. It'll come out of it probably because the economics are good. But right now, if you're a renewable energy developer, you're looking for new sources, new homes for your projects. Corporate procurement is the top of every list um, because the total addressable market, the potential, is obviously enormous, almost limitless by today's standards. And we're just starting to see it really pick up steam, thanks in no small part to early adopters like GM and facilitators like RMI. So it's really important in that context. I would also say the other thing that I think about when I think about corporate procurement is I put it um, in the same league as this more general conversation being had in electricity in the US around customer choice. And a lot of the time when we talk about customer choice, mostly we're talking about residential. There are all these battles in the residential market between solar advocates and utilities as it pertains to things like rate structures and net energy metering where customers are saying, well, we want more choice. We want to be able to put solar on our roof or a battery um, in our you know, basement. Uh, and there's sort of a, a push and pull there about how much customer choice should we allow and how should we enable the customer to interact with the grid as a result. I would put corporate procurement to some extent in a similar category because I think simultaneously with all these residential customers saying that they've got something new going on and they're interested in a new type of energy landscape, you have large customers saying the same thing via procurement of renewable energy, also via, in some cases, more drastic measures like defecting from their regulated utility, which we've started to see happen in places like Nevada, um, which is a big trend. But even when you know, customers are doing it um, and it's not defecting from the utility, they're also sending a signal to regulators and to their utilities saying, look, you should be accommodating my desire to have my energy look in a particular way, in this case, yeah. renewable. So, you know, customers have a big role to play there as well as, uh, you know, being an important component of the overall renewable energy market in the yeah. U.S. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, one is the sort of the, the impact of the ITC and the PTC and worries about expiration and how that elevated the project pipeline last year and what that means for projects this year. And another is customer motivations. How much of this has to do with sustainability goals and how much of it has to do with just straight up economics and customer choice. So Hervé, help 
us all understand why companies are investing in these projects. Um, you put up a slide yesterday that showed the number of 100% renewable energy commitments, of which GM is a member, that, that he's, the, GM is a member of that list. The number of commitments has skyrocketed over the last few years. Um, that, of course, is playing a, an important role, but Shale kind of mentioned this customer choice element that really goes outside of sustainability in general. What's the breakdown in terms of customer motivations? <clears throat> I think um, uh, sustainability is, of course, uh, a major factor. Um, I think WWF uh, two years ago ran uh, uh, a poll on uh, Fortune 500 and found that 45% uh, of large corporations had sustainability targets. And if you ask why, um, there are essentially three reasons. The first is their customers want that. The second is that their employees want that. And third is that if you look at Wall Street, more and more investors are looking for companies that care about sustainability. So some investors do it because they want to do good for the planet, I would say. But many investors do it simply because they understand that sustainable businesses are in the long run going to be more profitable. And, and now they can, I mean, we, were, we heard some case studies from companies that early on were invested heavily in energy efficiency and eventually renewable energy. And around the 2000, between 2006 and 2011 timeframe, people were very skeptical of the value of these projects. I mean, you had a lot of internal champions, but today I think we take for granted that there's a solid business case. When you look five years ago, I mean, it wasn't very clear that there was a solid business case. Would you say that that's um, correct for many companies? I think uh, once you get sustainability targets, the next step is you need to execute on your targets. And it's clear for uh, most, if not all, businesses that the first thing to do is energy efficiency, because that is the most cost-effective way of going towards executing on your targets. But you cannot run GM with zero electricity consumption. So once you have done energy efficiency, and of course you will continue over that, the next step typically businesses follow is to do on-site generation. Again, it is limited in volume. In a data center, you can cover the roof of a data center with solar PV panels. Maybe you cover 5% of the electricity needs. So if you want, and if you want to reach your uh, renewable, your 100% renewable target, the only option you have today is actually to source electricity from off-site uh, projects. Now, back to your question, are those projects profitable? The way most corporations look at it is to say, well, I don't want to have an exposure on, my, uh, gas, on gas prices for my business. I am not a business focused on commodity pricing. I'm trying to sell cars. I'm trying to sell various type of equipments. So, it's a better approach for the business to lock at least part of my electricity prices over the long run. It provides stability, it reduces my needs of equity in the business, it reduces my cost of capital, so it is a good way to move forward. Now, it, of course, when you sign a contract and you fix prices for 15 years, it may well be that during that period of time, some years, the fixed price will be lower or higher than uh, prevailing uh, spot market prices. So in a long time period, like 15 years, some years you will earn money, 
some years we actually lose money. But that's normal, and I think most businesses understand that. I'm curious, Rob, you mentioned when we were talking earlier that you've been, I think, correct me if I'm wrong here, you've been uh, in charge of renewable energy for GM for, since 2011. Is that yes. right? And been working on energy projects for 17 years? Yeah, I've been at GM almost 17, well, going on 17 years, all on the energy side of the business, whether it's been procuring, doing energy efficiency projects, building power plants for our manufacturing sites. But in 2011, they formed a sustainability team to really focus on a lot of our sustainability efforts, landfill-free activities, wildlife habitat certification, and, and renewable energy. And my role at that point became a global manager of renewable energy at GM, which basically took what I was doing 10% of the time as my full-time job, you know, and looking at what we've done and a lot of success in our areas of landfill gas. You know, back when we signed some of these contracts in the mid-90s for landfill gas, they were very similar to the deals you're doing for PPAs off-site. These were gas, landfill gas coming off-site to on-site, we're burning it in our boilers. So it was taking a lot of that history, but also, you know, educating our internal leadership. You know, they saw these long-term contracts. What do the natural gas prices do and how are we saving on the landfill gas contracts over this lengthy term that we had? And it was amazing because you could see the dramatic, you know, fluctuations in our savings every year. But we did see savings. There were other times that we, we actually did pay for a little bit more for the landfill gas because the way the pricing structure in natural gas was. But I think it's building on that history and then the similar getting into some of our initial solar contracts we did in 2005, six, some of these on-site PPAs. Uh, and it kind of as Hervé, and as you've noted, Shale, that you know, we're not going to get there with on-site projects, even if we plastered an entire assembly plant with 20 megawatts, which you could, with solar, it's not going to get us there. So it was really taking a lot of what we've done internally with landfill gas and solar and taking it to the next level. And as 2011, you know, as I looked at my new role really focusing on that was going off-site, and it kind of as Hervé noted too, you know, WWF, it was about two and a half, it was 2013, September, when they got some of the corporations that were part of, you know, looking at how do we scale this up, that we came up with the buyer's principles that led to the development of the BRC, which we were founding members and is continuing that long, you know, trajectory of moving renewables. And all in the same time, the costs have come down, you know, where a lot of the initial projects were done in states that had, you know, an appetite, tax incentives and support for renewables, but the costs were coming down. We did our first project uh, at our site in California, at Rancho Cucamonga in 2005, the price for solar was over $9 a watt when we did that project, if you think about that. And that was just about 10 years ago. Where, where's, where, what, what are costs now? Dollar a watt, approaching a dollar a watt. So, there you have it, you know, tenfold decrease in, you know, in costs. And so that really started to, as we looked internally, you know, renewables were becoming a way to really provide price stability in our contracts uh, of our electricity pricing going forward. Okay, so you've got... Um a 50 megawatt deal that you signed this week or last week that you announced at least yep. you announced last week. Uh, it is part of a 150 megawatt project in Texas. Um, why not buy the whole project? This is wind, by the way. Well, it kind of gets back to, you know, as we were talking about aggregation and smaller customers. When we did some of our first deals, you know, I was kind of taking a pragmatic approach to understanding what our sensitivity was as a company to these offsite deals. Our first deal we did in Mexico was 30 megawatts. Then we did another deal for 34. We've moved up to 50. And these are where you have plans. Where we've really got plans. Specific. Yeah. Exactly. So it's kind of, you know, increasing the size, but really focusing our efforts in where we've got our load regions. And I think that's an important component for us because from a risk exposure standpoint, you know, as the PPA floats, you know, obviously these are virtual PPAs, contract for differences, types of arrangements. You know, if the power prices do crash, I mean, great for everyone, great for the plant because it's still buying electricity for the same, you know, the reduced rates that we're doing. 
we may have to take some of that financial risk and make up for it, but we're gaining it on the other side. So looking at the whole basis risk model you know, is an important component of our strategy as we, we go forward with that. And so the, the deal in Texas, the 50 megawatt basically takes all of our Texas operations to 100% and some of our other you know, ancillary you know, warehouses that are around at least the east of the Mississippi that have very small loads. So this is as much a hedging strategy as it is a sustainability strategy then? It's really you know, focused on price stability which is an important component of our strategy. But sustainability is another key component of that you know, as well. And you know, we're a manufacturer of electric vehicles. We saw yesterday the Bolt being you know, launched right now is, you know, and being rolled out. But you know, driving a sustainable grid so that you know, our manufacturing of electric vehicles you know, is, is an important component of that. I'm curious, Hervey, you mentioned yesterday, and this relates, you know, you, Rob, you just signed a 50 megawatt wind deal, and GM was one of the early adopters of on-site solar and off-site solar as well. Um, you put up some data yesterday, Hervé, showing that solar was actually a bigger component of new procurement from corporates, off-site procurement from corporates in 2015 than it has been thus far in 2016. It's almost all wind this year. Is that purely an economic question? Is it just a wind PPA is cheaper and thus wind has been winning, or do you feel like there's something else to it? Talking with uh, corporate buyers, uh, indeed, there is not a big distinction between wind and solar in terms of preferences. And uh, as you know, 2016, we had um, we experienced uh, really low uh, wholesale electricity prices. So I believe, indeed, that's the main reason behind uh, the lower uh, market share, if I can use that mm -hmm. term, for solar is uh, largely driven by economics. And Rob, do you have any preference in any direction at when you're considering a particular facility or procurement in a particular place between wind and solar? No, I mean, really, what's most price competitive for us, you know, in those spaces really is for us. Got it. Um, so very large corporations are making some of the boldest investments in renewables, energy efficiency, broader carbon reductions. What about Fortune 1000 companies or some of the smaller companies? Um, you know, I think many of the people in this room are trying to tap that customer class, but uh, we haven't really seen as much activity among those type of corporate, potential corporate buyers. Why not, Hervé? Uh, first, uh, let me share with you some data. Uh, if you look at Fortune 100, uh, roughly 12% of them have signed corporate PPAs. If you look at Fortune 101 to 500, I don't have the data for the other ones, but uh, the next 400 companies, uh, only 1% of them have sent PPA. So it's a very clear difference. Um, I think there are a variety of reasons. First, there is more uh, public pressure to act on sustainability when you are a bigger company. That's one important element. And second, of course, if you are a bigger company, you are more likely to have a bigger load. And if you look at the average size of deals that have been signed uh, since this movement started, we are talking about roughly 100 megawatts. So companies that are more on the second tier in terms of size, it's more difficult for them to find 100 megawatts. So when we look now at deals at the 10 megawatt range, the problem they have is that they do not fit the natural size of uh, a utility scale solar or wind farm. 100 megawatts is the natural side for the seller. 10 megawatts is the natural side for the buyer. So you need to aggregate between the two. And we are still looking within the community at the most effective way to aggregate demand so that 
10 megawatt buyers can benefit from the economics of large scale, utility scale, solar and wind. One thing that I, I've been trying to make sense of the past couple of days, so we, we, you've, we've been talking a lot about the, you know, the average deal size is 100 megawatts and it's hard to get a deal done that's a lot smaller, and, but there's obviously a huge amount of potential for 5, 10, 20 megawatt deals. And the assumption seems to be that there, you can't get that financed as easily or that the seller wouldn't be as interested in that. On the other hand, there's actually a pretty vibrant market for you know, solar projects of that size with utility offtake. You, know, you have feed-in tariff programs in California. You have some rooftop projects in places like New Jersey that hit that scale. So is it just that the nature of these off-site deals are so much more complex, the transaction costs so much higher, that you need larger scale? Or is there something else that's distinct about these off-site deals that makes it more difficult to get a 10 megawatt project done than it would be for an on-site? Well, if, if you look at it from a developer perspective, uh, you have a portfolio of large projects and you want to go at that scale because you reach better economics. Now the question is how, do you, how are you going to market these better economics to uh, 10 off-takers that can take 10 megawatts each? And simply, the industry has not matured to provide an effective solution to that problem. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to, as you have seen in the conference of the past uh, one, one and a half day, this is a topic of the highest possible importance. We voted yesterday collectively, and it came out number one. So I am very optimistic we are going to find solutions. But simply, so far, there was enough demand for the very large corporate buyers for the industry not to focus so much on aggregation. But it is clearly our next priority. Well, I don't think we can have this conversation without talking about what's in the news, and that is uh, the post-election environment for uh, climate commitments, for clean energy, and um, what a potential, what a change in the administration means for the long-term evolution of energy markets and eventually corporate procurement. So we saw really telling slide yesterday when this room voted on whether or not deals continue to move forward under a Trump administration where there is a lot of uncertainty around renewable energy policy. And the vast majority of people said that deal flow stays the same. And I think a number of people said that deal flow actually increases. Uh, but there are a number of risks, namely that we see a potential early phase out or repeal of the ITC and the PTC, which I think a lot of people thus far think is very unlikely, but certainly something that could get on the table if we see comprehensive tax reform and they need to like find pay-fors anywhere they can. Um, inevitably, we're going to see a rollback in regulations that potentially impact the marginal economics of coal. And if you start continue burning coal and do less natural gas switching, maybe you have more natural gas supply and natural gas prices remain low here in this country. So there are, I think, certainly some factors that could impact the economics of this industry long term, but everyone in this room seems to believe, or a lot of people in this room seem to believe, that deals continue to go forward. Um, Rob, I'll turn it over to you. Do you believe that? That it doesn't really matter, we're going to continue moving forward on, our on your commitments and um, that inevitably the economics are going to work out for you. And yeah, what could change that? I think, yeah, we're going to continue to go forward with our commitment. I mean, our RE100 commitment really focuses around four pillars. Energy efficiency is we focused. I mean, that's always going to make 
business sense. We're going to continue to do that. We're going to continue to source renewable energy projects. Price stability is important to us when you look at you know, our long-term energy costs of what we're doing in manufacturing. I mean, we still spend roughly a billion dollars in our energy on an annual basis. We're going to do what we can to continue to trim those costs. You know, energy storage, I think, you know, as we look at our advanced propulsion systems, you know, we're designing for EVs, as mentioned, fuel cells. Those are good ways to look at potentially addressing the intermittency question that comes up down the road. So we're, we're investing as car companies billions into those systems that could have a dramatic impact going forward on the, on the grid and reducing some of that risk and exposure on the PPA side. Uh, and then it's policy and scale. So I, you know, we're committed to sustainable measures that you know, make business sense, continuing to you know, operate you know, in the right manner in our communities that we operate in and, you know, and continue to, to address the larger energy and environmental issues that, that the world is seeing. You know, but financially, it's, it's the direction, and I don't really see much you know, of a change in that area. So we're going to continue that you know, effort. As mentioned, we just did the 50 megawatt deal, and we're going to continue that path going forward. If anything, I'm going to say we're going to try to scale that up faster. You know, we've got a 2020 you know, vision as a company that we've hosted with a lot of you know, the employees, but you know, it kind of focuses around these efforts. You know, think big, start small, scale fast, listen intently, ask why, find a friend, follow the energy, lean into conflict, because there's going to be conflict within the organizations, and be bold. You know, those measures is what we're going to be really focused on as a company, and we continue and will be. I think, though, I mean, just to be frank, right, it's easy to say, and it's probably true, if, you're, if you've made this commitment or you intend to make this commitment, that you intend to follow through with it uh, regardless, and that, you know, change of administration shouldn't change that. I, I think that makes perfect sense. Everybody should continue to do what they're doing. The reality, though, is that the reason that this market has been picking up, which, is, which was true of, you know, rooftop solar when that market started to pick up, is that the economics have gotten good enough that there is a pure economic case to make these decisions in addition to a sustainability case. And the question here is, you know, obviously if the economics continue to be good, everyone's going to, you know, we're hoping there's going to be floodgates that open up and everybody's going to pour in. Everybody who already has commitments will keep doing it. Um, what happens if the economics start to look a little bit worse? If the ITC or PTC are repealed, again, unlikely, shouldn't happen, but if it did, um, or if you know natural gas prices were to go even lower and the hedge value looked a little bit more difficult, the question would be then: Are buyers committed to this to the extent that they will make a decision that is not in their necessarily pure economic best interests immediately? Is the commitment that strong? Um, otherwise, of course, everything is going to continue. Yeah, Hervé, what, what's your opinion on that? I mean, we are talking about uh, businesses. So it's clear that uh, if contracts are uh, completely out of the money and we don't see a uh, possibility of an economic benefit, uh, most of the market will disappear. Uh, there is no doubt about this. Corporate buyers indeed act because of sustainability reasons, but doesn't mean they forget the economics. And one of the very important messages, I think, to, to, the, to your audience, I would say, or our audience today, is that we don't see such a large development as we have seen up to today because only sustainability was a driver. The economics have always had to be sound. It's a very important message because many people believe that wind and solar are still too expensive. It's not the case in many situations. Now, of course, if you... Uh, describe uh, an apocalyptic scenario where gas prices go below uh, the marginal cost of production for gas and, EPC, and uh, PTC and ITC disappear, 
that would be really difficult for the industry to move forward. Yeah. But I don't think this scenario is actually realistic. Uh, last year, uh, Republican-led Congress voted for the extension of PTC and ITC. The technology improvement of wind and solar continue to be strong, which is not the case by any measure in coal-fired power generation, nuclear, or even gas. So the advantage of renewable energy is increasing over time. Um, and uh, those two factors, with an increasing awareness of the business community of the gap widening in favor of renewable energy, to me, are fundamental trends that we're going to sustain this market moving forward. Yeah. I think a lot of people are skeptical that an ITC and PTC get repealed because we have such strong Republican support for both of those credits because well over 80% of wind projects are now installed in Republican districts. In California, a study recently came out showing that the majority of solar installations are actually in Republican districts in that state, which is the solar leader, of course. And so there have been a lot of bipartisan alliances formed around renewable energy on Capitol Hill, and, and those, I think, will stay strong. Um, but as I've talked to people post-election, um, whatever you think about the change in presidency, there is clearly a lot of uncertainty, and people generally fall into two camps. One is, if you're really concerned about climate change, you're very worried, and if you care about the business of renewables, you may have some uncertainty, but you think that things move forward as is. Um, and maybe you get uh, less of a boost from the long-term impact of the clean power plan and so forth, but largely federal investments stay. Um, you have a lot of allies on Capitol Hill, and because a lot of regulation happens on the state level, uh, you're going to continue to have business as usual there. So uh, I think as I've thought about this, the, the more the message coming out of this room is that much more important, right? You have the biggest corporate players, Fortune 100 companies who are saying, nope, this does not slow down. We are gonna continue to build these projects because it makes economic sense and because we care about sustainability. And so that has a one-two climate and economic punch that I think makes the message coming out of this room that much more important in the next administration. I think in particular in the international community, in the international context, right? The, you know, whether we think it's likely or not that, that particular U.S. tax policy gets changed, um, what seems more likely to change in the next administration, though we don't know anything for sure, is lack of action on climate change, right? So not enacting anything to do with the Paris Climate Accord, maybe, you know, backing out of the clean power plan. Those send a message to the international community, which is just as important, if not more important, on climate action. And I do think that this is where there's an opportunity for corporates um, based in the U.S. or within the U.S. to have a very loud voice in the international context and say, regardless of what we're doing from a federal administration perspective, here's what we're doing in the private sector in the U.S. There is still action being taken. There is still a commitment here, and thus everyone else in the rest of the global community shouldn't back out of what they're currently planning to do in terms of climate change mitigation, um, because the U.S. is not going to bail on our commitments. We're just going to do it through the private sector in the States. Rob or, or Herve, do you want to comment on, on that in particular, the influence of corporates in, in uh, pushing the economic and, and environmental message of the, this sector? 
Yeah, I think it's important. We were all, most of us are global companies, so we got global constituents in other countries we operate in and manufacturing as well. So we're going to continue, you know, that path. I think having announcements, you know, the Microsoft announcement that came out Tuesday, I saw several ones that linked in other corporations that are signing on to 100% commitments. They had GM in the message, they had Amazon in the message. The more that you link the common theme that the corporations are, are doing this because it makes sense and then the consistent message with press releases coming out, you know, that's what we're doing and we're going to continue to do that. And we're all primarily operating on a global basis. And you guys have done some international deals. You've, yep. you've in Mexico, is it uh, anywhere else besides Mexico? Yeah, and we've done some, we've done about 30 megawatts of on-site PPAs in China. So, I mean, mm. yeah, we're continuing, you know, those efforts and looking at our international markets. Uh, you know, and so we're going to continue doing that, you know, irregardless. And generally, have you found those international deals easier to get done, harder to get done versus the U.S.? It's pretty consistent about the same, I would say. Mm. You know, I would say in China, for us, a little bit different because we're in automotive companies, we're joint ventures. So we've got kind of both parties that kind of support that and help push that. But um, it can be more difficult, too, because then you got two parties as well. So, I mean, it, it, it depends. But I think it's a matter of having top leadership support saying we're going to do this. We've got an RE100 commitment. We've got focus on energy efficiency and the other efforts and keeping that consistent message internally. And I think also building and recognizing the internal team that's important to that. I stress this on some of my other comments and I'm talking with folks. But, you know, when you sit down with the finance, accounting, and treasury is to really make them understand their enablers to this goal. They're not sitting there doing spreadsheets, supporting it. They're actually supporting the position of the company, signing these deals, signing and commitments that our top leadership's done. So I think, you know, I may be the captain of the team, you could say, but in essence, there's a whole repertoire of folks that are behind the scene um, doing this and supporting these efforts within the company and, and enabling them to be successful at it as well. And, and, sh and so that they understand that other corporations that are signing on to these deals are doing it for a very consistent manner. I think transparency and consistency is going to be very important. What is the hardest thing about doing some of these deals? Is it just the contract negotiations themselves? Is it working with partners and getting everyone at the table and... and um, you know, working your way through the lead time? Is it identifying geographic areas where you can match projects to load? Um, what is the most complicated part of building, the, and building these projects and signing these PPAs? Well, I, you know, it really is, I think, comes down to, you know, there are positions that the company wants to take, there are positions that developers want to take and kind of come into, you know, that takes several months, I think. You know, in regards to that, I think some of our bigger challenges, and we're trying to streamline that internally, is the fact that our finance, accounting, and treasury folks change so frequently. So then you get another person who you've got to educate as to what we're doing. So I think having that goal is important because at least they see from a corporate standpoint we're supporting this and then educating them and putting into place, you know, a kind of, I would say, policy, or in our states, we got general, our GMS system, which is our global manufacturing system, putting those in place so that, you know, as people change, the consistency stays there so that the process, you know, this is part of your job responsibility of doing that. So I think, you know, those are probably, I would say, two of the most challenging parts that we go through when we do the deals. I wouldn't say so much finding the locations uh, is as difficult. You know, we, we focused on, obviously, the markets that make the most sense, but as the costs have come down, that's opened up other markets. And then really understanding where your loads are. You know, as you want to meet your goal, you know, you want to look at your largest loads probably first and then transition down. But you may find some small loads make the most sense going forward. So it's really understanding your energy consumption use and your mix and locations and then figuring out what makes the most sense going forward to meet your goal. 
It may be certain locations. It may be smaller loads. It's, it really comes down to, you know, how expeditiously can you get those deals through and then get a, build that foundation and then work towards that next level. I mean, you're, you're helping to facilitate these transactions. Where, where is the most common roadblock that you run into that's like driving you crazy? A good question. Um, what we have, um, what we have noticed, indeed, as uh, uh, Rob mentioned, is that many most corporations will form a team of highly competent people that understand the energy sector, um, in charge of leading the way. But the problem is internally, they have to get approval. Those large deals. I mean, those deals can be very large. We are talking about contracts with a nominal value of perhaps several hundred million dollars. So if you want that contract to be signed, it needs to go on the desk of the CFO. Um, and as a consequence, you need to talk about accounting, treasury, and people that themselves have no experience about the electricity sector. So, and at times, you find CFOs that react very instinctively about a particular contract. We have seen one or two cases, for example, last year, where corporate PPA included clauses that made it impossible to finance the project afterwards. Why? Because the CFO, not knowing very much about the detail, pushed some things that, from his perspective or her perspective, made a lot of business sense, but killed the deal. So this part of education is very difficult. So what we are trying to do with the Business Renewable Center is indeed to provide as much knowledge as possible. We are organizing boot camps, for example, and we are welcoming not only deal teams in the boot camps, but also people from the treasury or accounting department, so they can, they can see uh, what it entails to be able to uh, conclude those deals successfully. That part of the process is actually the hardest. Can you give an, uh, even just a generic example of the type of a clause that a CFO might be interested in including in a deal that might kill it then when they try to finance it? Well, essentially, it's their clauses that are protective for the corporate buyer. But if you look at uh, those clauses uh, from a, a dead provider perspective, it looks as if, I make it black and white, but it looks as if the corporate buyer has an option to walk away. And as a consequence, as a lender, of course, that's the last thing you want to see in a contract. Mm. So this is a mechanism that you have seen in a small number, but in some number of uh, situations. Okay, so I want to talk about um, the role of corporates in the energy markets. Uh, Apple and Google were the latest to get approval from FERC to sell energy and to sell to bid in grid services. I think in the press, people tend to make a bigger deal of this than it actually is. Um, you know, people say, oh, is Google going to be the next utility? Is Apple going to be your next utility? Um, but the question is, how many more large companies are going to do this? Would a company like GM eventually ask FERC to buy and sell energy and to, to offer grid services? And um, how important is this? How should we read into this trend? Hervé, I'll, I'll start with you. I mean, first, it's not new. I mean, uh, companies right, like right. Dow Chemical have been uh, trading electricity since the opening of the market. Yep. Um, simply it gives them uh, direct access to the wholesale market so they can optimize their corporate PPAs. At times, some of these companies also own physical assets. Then they want to optimize uh, how to dispatch them and to you know, generate more economic value for themselves. I don't see, I mean, 
who is doing it? Dow Chemical, indeed Apple, I think Walmart, um, and Amazon, I believe. So I would not uh, see any of these companies, perhaps at the exception of Walmart with a retailer, uh, becoming a retailer for residential customers. That's not their objective. The objective is simply to optimize their energy position, um, whether they are long-term contracts or uh, physical assets. Um, I can imagine Amazon getting into it at some point, right? Amazon wants to sell all of us everything that we buy. Why wouldn't they want to sell us electricity? But that said, I totally agree. Overblown, yeah, not that big a deal today until Amazon launches Amazon Residential Energy Services. But it's, it's interesting in that may, it may not be, uh, a, it may be an overblown trend, but it actually gets people talking about this stuff too. Mm -hmm. and, so, uh, Rob, do you have any comment on, on that at all? Or? No, I mean, Hervé said it right. I mean, we, we're going to look at ways to optimize it. I don't see us really becoming, you know, that, that gets definitely a different layer of complication uh, on our part. So I think we would stay focused. We're a car company. That's where we're going to manufacture and continue to be as a car company. Um, and we'll look at ways to optimize our manufacturing in a sustainable manner. And that's what we're going to focus on. Um, how are these projects evolving in terms of technology type? We've seen that wind just completely dominates this sector now. Uh, we're starting to get more solar deals done. You, Rob, said that it doesn't really matter to you as long as uh, the, the project pencils out. Um, will storage start to play a role in your procurement? Do the suite of on-site technologies like solar plus storage, um, both on-site and off-site, um, energy management software, load controllers, like this whole suite of what we call Solar Plus. Is that interesting to you? Has anybody approached you with projects that actually look attractive, or is it still basically your standard wind and solar deals? I'd say right now the market's primarily your wind and solar deals. Uh, we've done a couple of the battery storage projects to kind of understand, you know, the whole, op, you know, what, what and how this can have an impact on the grid. We did one even back into 2011 at our White Marsh facility in Maryland um, with solar energy storage you know, tied to the electric vehicle because you can optimize. Well, you can't pull from the electric vehicle currently, but you can operate it like a battery because you can stop the charge, start the charge, slow down the charge. There are things you can do in that manner. So I, I do see this, you know, you know, obviously driving the battery costs down. The automotive manufacturers are doing that with EVs. I do see that you know, having a dramatic impact on the battery storage side on the utility business, and both sides touch the grid, by the way, because the electric vehicles do, and so does, the, you know, from a storage standpoint, and so does renewables. So I think there's gonna be much more of a complementary, I think, effort in those areas, and it's gonna grow. Um, but you know, as Britta noted yesterday, you know, as we look at potential secondary use of electric vehicle batteries in that market, there just isn't any currently. So you know, and it may be that the new batteries are the cheaper way to go, too, as you look in the floor. But it's, you know, that's an evolving area. I think, you know, ultimately really being driven by the automotive manufacturers in the EV space. But also mentioned, I think you, you know, Hervé, commented, uh, or Amory did on the cell phones. I mean, ultimately, that's what's driving the technology that's driving then into the EVs. And then there could be a whole circular economy support in that area. But let's distinguish between like energy storage as an on-site solution, mm -hmm. which is yep. largely what you're talking about, to meet a variety of needs, yep. demand charge reduction, you know, resiliency, whatever it might be, versus energy storage as an off-site solution right. similar to the solar and wind deals we've been talking about, which we haven't seen yet, nope. and maybe seems a little bit more distant because there's just not the same need or economic value necessarily in having like a firm dispatchable solar PPA if you're, right. for off-site if you're a customer. 
Okay, so we only have a couple minutes left here, and we want to stick to time. And uh, I guess I'll ask one final question, and uh, Hervé, I'll kick it over to you. What is the role of utilities, you know, the, the, the either regulated utilities or the unregulated arms of utilities to offer these deals to corporate buyers? Um, are we seeing more activity among power suppliers in this market, or is it still largely independent developers? I mean, actually, a number of uh, large developers um, are uh, the unregulated are part of uh, utility organizations. They are the unregulated part, but uh, in, the, in the room you will find a number of uh, U.S. and uh, European utilities that uh, provide uh, projects outside their territory. Yeah. So uh, within a vertically integrated utility territory, uh, the difficulty for all parties is that it's not a negotiation between a buyer and a seller, it's a negotiation between a seller, a buyer, a utility, and a public utility commission or a public service commission. And there are four parties with different objectives. So obviously it takes more time. And if you ask buyers would they rather work with a utility than a developer, the question boils down to would you rather sign a four-page contract to a 70-page contract? You know the answer. The problem is simply the process is too slow today, simply because it is a complex uh, endeavor to align four parties with different uh, uh, objectives. That was Hervé Toati. We also had Rob Threlkeld and Shale Khan, my co-host. I'm Stephen Lacey. Uh, you can get all our podcasts at greentechmedia.com or GTM Squared. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes and SoundCloud and Stitcher and everywhere you get your podcasts. And thank you all for a great conversation. This space is really heating up. We're going to pay very close attention to it and a fabulous conference. Thanks all for having us. Thank you.